So if you take God's word and turn to Galatians chapter 3 for a moment, Galatians 3. Um, I trust everyone as you're making your way there, you're finding your spots. Do you have an outline this morning? If you don't, just casually raise your hand. All right. Paul, thanks for your help. Appreciate it. The left. Always problems with the left. That was not a political. That was not political. Shame on you, Chris Teagle. All right, Galatians chapter 3. Paul has been kicking the legs out from under the stool that the Judaizers have been sitting on as they are guilty of undermining the gospel of grace by trying to mix law and grace or misunderstanding the relationship between the two. And there is a relationship. One of the things we're seeing in chapter 3 is that he's making very succinct, declarative, clarifying statements to ensure that believers who love the gospel of grace are are aware or clear as to what the relationship is between now law and the grace that they've received in Jesus Christ. Because to be confused is disastrous, comes with grave consequences. So let's pray this morning. And uh, our hope in prayer, I, I just want to encourage you, um, I just having conversations with people, hey, I haven't spent much time in the book of Galatians before, and, and perhaps part of it is is due to even right the section that we're in. Sometimes people get bogged down in chapter three, just the logic and framework, but it is it is grand. It's glorious. The, the succinct things that are being outlined for us, we want to, we'll, we'll slow down. We'll take our time and make sure that we're clear about it. And I trust in time you will, it, it will be an instrument as God's word so typically is in wonderfully is, it will be an instrument to highlight and magnify God's grace in your life and will compel the worship that you ought to render to him. Let's pray now and ask for his help. God, we thank you so much for this morning. You've brought us to this place. You've brought us with um, energy. You've awakened us a new day where your mercies are abounding. Your kindness is extensive and we are undeserving. And so we are moved with gratitude, even as we, as, we have, as we have the joy and the blessing of sitting under your word, being enriched by the fellowship of your people. We ask that our fellowship would be sweet today, that you would mark us by your grace, that we would be very keenly, keenly aware that you are a God who's lavished us with love and kindness through the work of your son. And that's no small price. And so we, want to, we don't want to take anything for granted, and that includes the treasure of this book that you've given us. We ask that you would inspire within us an attentiveness to lean in on the edge of our seats and be eager to hear what you have written to us, that we might be, yes, informed, that, yes, our theological understanding would, would be robust and would grow deep and wide. But, Lord, we also pray that it would lead to lives which are marked by worship and gratitude. So we pray that you would do this wonderful work for your glory today and for the good of your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Main idea over Galatians 3, 15 through 29, by way of reminder, is Scripture is telling a story, and it's telling a story of a God who keeps his promises. 
As I've already mentioned, Paul's been defending the gospel of grace. And and in verses 1 through 5, by way of reminder, he's really saying there, hey, listen, our experience in salvation, God's initiative-taking interaction with us in salvation testifies of the fact that God saves by grace. Two weeks ago, we were covering verses 6 through 14, where we see that scripture there is telling a story that God has always, and that's a key word, always justified sinners by grace through faith in Christ alone. And now in verses 15 through 29, which will take us several weeks, this is week two, scripture tells a story of a God who keeps his promises. Now, we covered a promise earlier in Galatians 3 last week, going all the way back to the book of Genesis. And someone tell me, what was that promise? Anyone recall? Okay, we will not move on to part two. We will simply redo part one. What was that promise? Genesis. Yes, Messiah would come, right? And who's he speaking to in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15? Abraham, that's right, right? Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, right? A promise that would entail one who would come from him and one who would procure the blessings of salvation through his own sufficient work on the cross, taking the curse of sin upon himself, our curse, and lavishing eternal life on God's elected people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And God keeps that promise. Amen? Amen? Okay. So we're going to cover this. This is week two of several. Let's read verses 15 onward, reading from the New American Standard Translation. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified... No one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is who, church? Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? That's a fair question. It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. And the second question, verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay? If you were lost in that maze, that's okay. We'll walk through it line by line, okay? Um, I know many of you have probably been in a similar scenario to myself. You purchased an item of which you have to, have to assemble, right? A piece of furniture, a toy, a, a home gadget, 
a bicycle and you open the package and you lay out the instructions and you proceed to do your best to assemble said item, right? But in the end, you are faced with a dilemma and you've been here. You realize that you have a few parts left over and your first inkling, your first thought is, what have I forgotten to do? Now, after reviewing the instructions for a while, you simply do the only thing that you know to do and come to the conclusion that perhaps this item, this object, this part, maybe it's not necessary, right? Maybe it was included by mistake. And in other words, you're not entirely sure what to do with this leftover part. Well, this is something like the situation that Paul addressed in his letter to the Galatian churches. He has just gone to great lengths to show how salvation and the gospel do not come through law. And so there's this natural question then that comes up in the mind of the Judaizers, and he preemptively gets out in front of it. Why then the law? Is it a leftover? Has Paul forgotten to include it? Well, this is exactly where the rest of this passage begins to unpack still further, a passage that we began last Sunday, and it proves helpful to us. Paul anticipates this question, and led by God's Spirit, he sets out to answer it in preemptive fashion. Now, Northlake, as we begin to kind of unpack this, you have to keep in mind everything that Paul is saying, what is it doing? It is flying in the face of everything the Judaizers were espousing in their time, everything that they were teaching. We know from Acts 15, what were these men doing? They were disturbing the faith of many within the church. By how? They were saying that our justification, Gentiles' justification, their right standing with God came through both their faith in Christ as well as circumcision, or to put more broadly, their obedience to the law. And that is disturbing to say the least. And so throughout Galatians 3, the apostle has stressed over and over again, using the Old Testament, that salvation and justification has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Last week we saw that he especially highlights this wonderful truth by pointing to God's unchanging, irrevocable covenant promise to Abraham, verses 15 through 18. God made this promise to Abram and to his seed, that is Jesus Christ, And if the inheritance of the covenant promise were through obedience to the law, then salvation would no longer be on the basis of that promise. And that was a big deal. If salvation came through obedience, then it would nullify God's covenant promise to Abraham. Friends, as you and I saw last week, the first point that we looked at, verses 15 through 18, is that the law cannot change the promise. It cannot change the promise. As we move further, Paul makes two more statements that help us to understand still further the relationship between law and grace. Not only can the law not change the promise, but the law is not greater than the promise. It's not greater. Paul was a very perceptive guy. He could hear the murmurs of the, of the Judaizers. As they were saying, okay, okay, Paul, you, you just told us that the law cannot change the promise, but, but, Paul, what if, right? It's always a troubling statement. What if a later revelation 
such as the law of Moses was, was greater, more, was more glorious than the earlier revelation. What then? You're telling us that the only way a person can be saved is by looking to Christ by faith? Well, Paul, if that is the case, well, then how was, how was Abraham saved? And why then the law? Why would then God need to give 430 years later the law after he had given the promise? Well, that is exactly the question that Paul sets out to answer in verses 19 through 20. The law is not greater than the promise. Let's reread it for a moment, and we'll move our way slowly. Why the law then? Paul says, let me tell you why. It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Friends, the first piece of spirit-led logic that you notice in Paul's response to their question is that the law, since it came later, is it then greater than the promise? His spirit-led logic to answer that, that challenge and that inquiry was the law was temporary, and you need to know this. The law was temporary. Look at verse 19 and dissect it more clearly. It was added. What's the takeaway there? The takeaway is that the promise came first. And you need to cling to that. The law was added, meaning the promise had come first, and we'll get why it was added in a moment. But first look at the end of verse 19. It was added until what? What does it say? Until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Until the seed would come. This message of the law as being temporary continues to run throughout the whole of this passage. Look at verse 23, and until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, until Christ came. And then later in verse 25, so that we are no longer under a tutor. The law was temporary. And since the law was temporary, it's, it's obvious, at least it should be, that a temporary law Listen, a temporary law cannot be greater than a permanent promise. Everyone follow the logic? A temporary law cannot be greater than a permanent promise. When you read God's covenant to Abraham, you find no if statements. Nothing was conditional. It was all of grace, and it was all relying upon one, wasn't it? But the blessings of the law were quite different, were they not? They were dependent upon the meeting of certain conditions, right? Deuteronomy 5, 33. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live. Man's part was to obey. God's part was to give life and to save. But as we saw last week, and you know this to be true in your own life, the problem was that man was unable and is unable to keep his part. And therefore, God could not grant life through the law. We're going to see that in just a moment. It's in, unable to impart life. Furthermore, the law had a, a terminus point, right? He says the statement, until the seed, we saw that last week. Who is the seed, just by way of reminder? Christ, thank you. Until the seed, none other than Christ himself, would come. 
the very one who would bring blessing through himself, the one who would be the very source of salvation, which is the greatest of all blessings, is it not? Until the seed should come. What does that mean? Friends, with the death and resurrection of Christ, the law was done away with in this. It was done away with in that its righteous demands are fulfilled in us through him, right? Pause long enough for a moment and let that wash over you. Every single one of its righteous demands are fulfilled in us through him. Look at Romans 7. You don't have to turn there. We'll put it here for the sake of expediency. We want to spend enough time to let us marinate in its juices. Sorry for the gross image. Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. Here it is, through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit for God. We were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Later, Romans 8, right? One of my favorite chapters in all of God's word. The great eight, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, here's our theme of Galatians, has what, church? Set you free from the law of sin and of death. This is great. For what the law could not do, as weak as though it was in the flesh, two great words, God did. Ascending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, his incarnation, And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that, here it is, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, the second piece of spirit-led logic you notice in Paul's response to their question, is the law, since it came later, later, is it greater than the promise? Was that the law was temporary, number one, right? It's now been fulfilled in us through Christ. And when you start trying to mess with the gospel of grace, you're missing, missing that glorious truth. You're completely skipping over Romans 7 and Romans 8. What the law, weak as though it was in the flesh, God did. That's always been his plan. Abraham, through you and through your seed, one who would come, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, I'm going to bless all nations, every people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The law was temporary. Now the seed has come. And not only was it temporary, but the law required a mediator. And that too is very distinct from the promise. Look at verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. And here we go, right here, having been ordained or put in place through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, where God is only one. What's he doing here? Just pause for a moment and think back to the book of Genesis. Actually, the book of Exodus, in this instance, with the law, right? And we'll get to Genesis. When God gave the law to Israel, you'll recall the scene, right? He did it by means of angels and through the mediation of who his prophet. What was his name? Three letters. Moses, right? A mediator, and you know this to be true, is someone who stands in between two parties and helps them agree. 
And that's exactly what Moses did in Exodus 33. You'll recall, even in the New Testament, Stephen is about to be martyred for his faithfulness to the gospel of Christ. And he's preaching in Acts chapter 7. Listen to what he says. The one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, that was Moses, with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, he received the living oracles to give to us. Stephen goes on to preach and report that Acts 7.53, you, Israel, received the law as delivered by angels, and yet you did not keep it. Our pastor's been even going through the book of Hebrews. We've already seen this in chapter 2, verse 2. Rights of the angelic delivery of the law here for the word spoken through angels. Hebrews 2, 2, proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. I think that's in your outline, is it not? Hebrews 2, 2, it's on the PowerPoint rather. For the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, Never mind, I didn't put it there. And every transgression and disobedience received its just penalty. Leviticus, the Old Testament even testifies of this act of mediation as well. In this instance, God is reiterating his, to his people the covenant blessings that come from obedience, as well as the curses that come from disobedience, right? He reiterates Deuteronomy 32 in a sense. And even in his unrivaled grace, he's still in this instance offering them a provision of repentance, right? A pathway of turning back to him. Leviticus 26, 46. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel. Here it is, mediation through Moses on Mount Sinai. What's going on here? This means, friends, that the nation of Israel received the law third hand. The law was revealed from God through angels to Moses, and then to them. That's very different than the promise, isn't it? You see, when God made the promise to Abraham, he did it personally, without a mediator. And we discussed the grandeur that was on display in Genesis 15, even last week. You want to talk about a contrast between the two, the giving of the law and the giving of the promise. You'll recall even Moses in his act of mediation in Exodus 33. When the law is given and it's conveyed to him, Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, no, 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 Moses, that's not a good idea. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you the afterglow of my glory. For after all, that is all that you as sinful man can can endure, see, and, and be able to live. I'll just show you the afterglow. Even this mediator couldn't have direct interaction with God, the Holy One. You want to talk about it, the need for a mediator. Even Moses, the great prophet, couldn't behold God. But when God made the promise to Abraham, it was very different, wasn't it? He did it personally without a mediator. The promise of salvation by faith was so precious to the heart of God that he gave it to Abraham in person. And God was revealing to Abraham all that he would do for him and all that he would do for his descendants. And yet in this gracious revealing, there's no need for a mediator in Abraham's case. Why? Why was there not a need for a mediator? It's because God was the one entering into covenant with Abraham and not Abraham entering into a covenant with him. 
A mediator, you see, is needed only when more than one party is involved. But in this case, in the promises case, God was the sole one doing the promising. God gave the promise to Abraham without a mediator because he was the only one involved in making the promise. And it's in light of this reality that Paul says in verse 20, God is one. Therefore, there was no need for a go-between. Yes, Abraham was a witness to the promise. He was a beneficiary of the promise, but he was not a party to it. He had no part in establishing it. He had no part in keeping it. That responsibility, and praise God for this, that responsibility rested on one being, and it was the holy God himself, of which all of God's people should say thank you. Or it's like, this is where we need to connect to the force of Paul's argument at this point. Here's where we need to feel the weight of his logic and be fully sensitive to the way this would have landed upon the ears and in the ears of those listening to this letter in that time. You see, the Judaizers, and we know this from the book of Hebrews, they were extremely impressed by the incidentals of the law. Things like a fiery mountain, an earth-shattering, earthquaking thunder, terrifying lightning, angels, and all the other externals. But Paul looked beyond the incidentals and to the essentials. He warned the Galatian believers not to exalt Moses, right? We've seen that in Hebrews. Christ is greater than Moses. Stop exalting Moses. Stop exalting angels over God himself as the Judaizers were doing. God and Christ are greater than Moses, greater than angels. And not just that, but the law was temporary and required a mediator. The covenant of promise was permanent and no mediator was required. So there was one conclusion to be made. The promise was greater than the law. Just because the law came later doesn't mean it was more glorious. Doesn't mean it replaced the promise. Doesn't mean it nullified that covenant. Paul wanted to make this plain and simple to those who were disturbing many within the church and for those who were in the process of being disturbed. He wanted this to be clear. Now, the third statement that Paul provides to help us understand the relationship between law and grace, not only can the law not change the promise and not only is the law not greater than the promise, but in verses 21 through 22, The law is not contrary to the promise. You and I can almost hear the Judaizers shouting the question in Galatians 3.21, right? Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And the rationale was this, since the Mosaic covenant of law is inferior to the Abrahamic covenant, which is what you're saying, Paul, does that mean that the law is contrary or against the Abrahamic promises? Is God contradicting himself? Does, he, does his right hand not know what the left hand is doing? And as he replies to this question, Paul reveals his deep insight into the ways and purposes of God. He does not say that the law contradicts the promise, but, rea- but it, rather in all reality, it cooperates with the promise and fulfilling the purposes of God. 
part of the takeaway for those in Galatia, and indeed even us, is that while law and grace seem to be at odds with each other, if you go deep enough, we discover that they actually complement one another, and we have to ask how. Let's look at that. Why then was the law given is the question. Remember, I think the second thing, the first thing he unpacks at this juncture is the law was not given to provide life. Let's be clear. The law was not given to provide life. You have to know this, Paul says. Why then the law? And Paul's answer might surprise some because notice the law has no role for the sinner to be able to save himself through their obedience. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. Emphatic. Say it as strong as you can. The idea of God contradicting himself is unthinkable to Paul. Because he says, for if, and that's a big if. For if a law which had been given was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. In other words, the law was inferior. Listen. The law was inferior because it could not save. It couldn't save. It was not able to impart life. Certainly the law of Moses, and we know this. The law of Moses, it regulated the lives of the Jewish people, and thankfully so. God's wisdom and protection are all over the law. His fingerprints of care and providence are all over it and led to his people's good. But while it regulated the lives of his people, it did not and could not provide spiritual life to his people. We've seen this already, Galatians 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through law, this is a big statement. Look at Galatians 2.21. If righteousness comes through law, this is almost, it's, it's almost pains you to say it. Then Christ died needlessly. That's heavy. If life and righteousness could have come through law, then Jesus Christ would have never died on the cross, but Jesus did die. <laughs> Therefore, the law could never give the sinner life and righteousness. Where was this helpful to those in Galatia? This needed to sink in, and this needed to sink in deep. This needed to give way to some cognitive remodeling among the Judaizers. After all, it was the worship of the law that led Israel into sort of a self-righteous religion of works, was it not? The result of which all the way culminated to the rejection of their own Messiah, of which they were supposedly looking for with great anticipation. Paul says, yes, the law has a place, but that place was not the one being given it by the, those that Paul was addressing. It was designed to function in a special way for a special time. The law was a temporary measure, and it was powerfully valid in the intentional, intentional purpose for which God ascribed to it. That is, until the coming of Christ himself. Which leads us to the second reason why the law is not contrary to the promise not only was the law not given to impart life, and they were messing this up, but the law was given to reveal sin. This is where we say law and grace cooperate. This is where we see the way that law and grace cooperates in bringing the lost sinner to Jesus Christ. Law shows the sinner his guilt. Grace 
shows the sinner the forgiveness he can have in Christ. Law shows the sinner his guilt. Grace shows the sinner the forgiveness that he can have in Christ. Why the law then? It was added, Paul says, because of transgressions. Here's the takeaway. The law does not make us sinners. The law simply reveals what we already are. One of the grand gospel statements that is at the core of this book, and we've seen it already, it's put so succinctly in Romans 3.20, right? For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Herein lies part of the purpose of the law. Herein lies part of the way the law cooperates with grace. James 1.22 and onward says that it's simply a mirror that helps us see our dirty faces. Let me ask you, practically in life, when you notice that your face is dirty, do you proceed to then take the mirror off the wall and then proceed to wash your face, face with said mirror? No, that's not the function of the mirror. It simply shows you that you are dirty and are in need of washing. The mirror cannot help you in that washing. We know this in real life, and James makes this plain. It is grace that provides the cleansing that we need through the blood of Christ himself. 1 John 1, 7, I think it's in the PowerPoint. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the very life-giving truth that Paul underscores and reiterates here in verse 22 of Galatians 3. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The scripture, through the law, has shut us up under sin. And what a powerful description of this reality, no? Please turn to Romans chapter 7 for a moment. Romans 7. The scripture has shut us up under sin. Now, shut us up under is a very, very strong term. It means to lock up securely, to hem in on every side with absolutely no way of escape. Keep that picture in mind. And is that not our condition left in our sin and guilt? Shut up, hemmed in, and no way of escape, left to our own devices and self. That's exactly what the law did. It arrested us and imprisoned us, then sentenced us to death. Look at other pertinent statements in Paul's writing. Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Paul loves these, these questions. Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not even have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Why? Because the one who gave it is holy. 
Verse 13, therefore did, that, therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. God wanted to accent the sinfulness of man so he gave his people the law. He wanted to make his people painfully aware of their sinfulness and of thus their fatal condition. The law was given to shut us under sin to the point where we cry out what? In desperation. Romans 7. Later he says, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? You know how he finishes? Thanks be to God, right? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ the Lord. Who will save me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. You look in the mirror, that is what we say. Apart from your grace, God, apart from your promise, and apart from your faithfulness to keep said promise, I am undone. I'm imprisoned with no way out. I am wretched and in need of grace. God didn't just want to make his people aware of their sinfulness without a remedy. Which is why in verse 22, he concludes as he does. But the scripture has shut us up, shut up everyone. That's all inclusive. Shut up everyone under sin. Here it is. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law drives us to the one in whom the promise of redemption was fulfilled. And that is Christ. Romans 5.20, right? I think it's in your PowerPoint. Romans 5.20, the law came in so that the transgression would be increase. But where sin increased, and praise God for this, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace reigns. That is the message of the book of Galatians. And that was what was being undermined in the churches of Galatia. This leads us to the third reason why the law is not contrary to the promise, which we're going to have to pick up next week. Trust me, that was not planned. This is not an audible Always plan. We're going to cover this next week. The law was given to prepare the way for Christ. The law was given to prepare the way for Christ. Verses 23 through 26. Martin Luther once wrote, So then the law is a minister that that prepares the way unto grace. The law is a minister that prepares the way unto grace. And we'll unpack that next Sunday. We have a few more minutes here. As we've been making our way through Galatians 3, you know by now, we always want to be intentional about asking, how do we live what we learn, right? Where does the law then fit today, I think is a natural question for you and I to ask, right? I want you to look at 1 Timothy 1.8. It's in your PowerPoint. According to 1 Timothy 1, there's a lawful use of the law and there's an unlawful use, okay? How do we live what we learn? Let's take note here, but we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, realizing the the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. 
The lawful use of the law is to reveal sin and to cause men, prompt men, to see their need for a Savior. The unlawful use, which is what the Judaizers were guilty of, is in holding out to people that they are to try to achieve their salvation through the keeping of said law. That is the unlawful use. When people claim that they are saved by being a good person or keeping the Ten Commandments, this is what they're, this is what they're missing. They are revealing their ignorance of the true meaning of the law. The law shuts all men under sin, and since all are under sin, the only way, the only way that they may be saved is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is the message of the book of Galatians. God does not have two ways of salvation. He has but one, and his name is Jesus Christ, right? There is salvation in, say it with me, no one else. We have to ask in this space of, okay, Lord, but still, as a believer, I want to be faithful to know where the law fits and how do I live what I learn? Well, I think a couple of questions here at this juncture. What should we as New Covenant believers, how should we look at the law? And how should the New Covenant believers such as us use the law? I think number one is to note a word about law and evangelism. Law and evangelism. The covenant of law is, is long past, but the moral demands of the law have not diminished, have they? That is why preaching the moral, ethical standards of the law today is still imperative in what? In driving men to Christ. Unless men realize that they are living in violation of God's law and are therefore standing under his divine judgment, even right now, right now, the gospel of John, right? They are even now resting under the wrath of God. Unless they realize this, they will see no reason to be saved. They see no need for salvation. Grace is meaningless to a person who feels no inadequacy or need of help. A person who sees no purpose in being saved if he does not realize that he is lost. He sees no need for forgiveness by God if he does not know that he has offended God. That person sees no need to seek God's mercy if he's not aware that he's under God's wrath. And so the purpose of the law was and is, we'll see this more even next week, to drive men to despair over their sins and to a desire to receive salvation by God's sovereign grace that he offers through Jesus Christ to those who believe. Church, we have to keep this in mind. As we set out to evangelize and tell people of the good news, they have to be mindful of the ways in which they offended God. Yes, come to them with grace and tact and spirit-led tenderness, but also that law which is used as a mirror to reveal our need for a Savior. The purpose of the law is not wrong, but it is inferior if you do not hold out the way of hope through Jesus Christ. We do not come alongside people and beat them over a stick with a stick that is known as law. We hold out to them grace. We hold out to them the gospel, the good news, that yes, you are under the wrath of God, and here's why. Yes, you are in need of a Savior, and here's why. Just as I am. But I've got good news for you. There's hope. 
There's life. There's righteousness. A righteousness that you can't achieve and it's come through the work of another. Let me tell you about him. That is us sharing the gospel. Secondly, not only the law and evangelism, but the law and sanctification. The law and sanctification. Have to be very clear here so that there's not confusion. Paul's explanation of the law clearly refutes the teaching of the Judaizers and that our salvation is not a combination of faith in Christ plus our good works, okay? He's making that case plain. Salvation comes through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nevertheless, the law still has a use in regards to our sanctification. Reformed theology has traditionally called this the third use of the moral law, right? The first use of the law is to reveal sin, okay? Augustine put it this way. The law bids us, as we try to fulfill its requirements and become, and this is a great way to put it, become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask the help of grace. Wearied in our weakness under it. It's a great way to put it. The law, first use, was to reveal sin. Secondly, the, law, the second use of the law is to restrain evil. It cannot change the heart. This much is true. But when upheld by righteous authorities, it can have a way of staying back evil. We know this in Romans 13, right? We hope and pray that our government has some notion of the moral law of God, right? Romans 2.14, that moral law is written on our hearts, literally etched in our hearts. Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, we have eternity written on our hearts. And we hope that we have individuals in authority that would exercise justice in the restraining of evil through that moral law that's bound up within. They may not even be believers, but at least punish it wrong, acknowledge evil, and you all can identify it. And as we get further away and Romans 1 seeps in and God gives people over to a debased mind, what begins to happen? We begin to call good evil and evil good. It becomes completely upside down. And that's happening in rapid fashion today. But even if the laws adhere to as a culture and as a society, it has a way of restraining evil, punishing wrongdoers, keeping us from being as bad as we possibly could be. It cannot change the heart. The third use of the law is to reveal what is pleasing to God. It enlightens us as to what is pleasing to our Father. You see, as Christians, we are free from the law as a system of salvation but we are under the law of Christ as a rule of life, right? Our redemption is from the curse of God's law, not from our duty to obey it, right? John Calvin put it this way, it is our rule for living. It is timeless and will endure to the end of the world. We know what's important to God. We know what his will is. The Holy One has spoken and given us instructions. And we're gonna see this in the rest of the book. Paul still has a place for the concept of the law, even though he's dismantling it as having any part of saving sinners. He wants that to be clear, but there's still a place for it. There's a binding obligation that we have towards the revealed will of God, and that's just one of obedience because we love him. Look at Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Later, Galatians 6.2, which is one of our memory passages for small groups, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. 
Westminster Confession said it this way, the law is a rule of life informing believers of the will of God and of their duty. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly. God, what is your will for my life? Open up the book. He's got a revealed will right there of how how am I to live? How am I to love? How am I to flee from evil? What is evil? The law then is immensely important for our sanctification. It cannot make you right. But we as believers must use it properly and never apart from Christ. I want to know what pleases my Father. Peter Barnes is an author for Banner of Truth. He says, The law in its normative use is not the actual road upon which we travel, but the guardrails on either side of the road. The road on which we travel is Christ. It's a good way to put it. Like guardrails, the law shows us where the path of righteousness lies and keeps us traveling on it. We're indwelt by His Spirit, and this is what we long to do. And He's not left us without instructions. And so the law is massively, massively helpful when used properly. And we're going to speak more of this in in the coming chapters, in the coming sessions, even next week as we look at verses 23 through 26. Let's go ahead and pray for our next hour. Thank you for being here this morning and kind of digging into a section that many people find to be Uh, easy to be lost in, in terms of logic and flow. But God's word is plain and in front of us, and he gives us grace to understand. Let's give him thanks now this morning. God, we thank you for this day and for the richness of your word. We thank you that you are a God that keeps your promises. And we're, the next hour, we're going to be able to sing of that faithfulness that you have exhibited through the gospel of your son. We ask that you would help us to revel in it. We pray that you would energize our songs with sincerity. Keep us from the great sin and tragedy of participating in this next hour in any sort of cold, religious, mechanical, kind of heartless, unimpacted way. Lord, we ask that you would make our hearts tender to your goodness in our lives and that you would work in us the responses that you rightfully deserve, which is one of adoration and appreciation, thanks. Help us as we seek to offer these things to you, for you are worthy. We ask for our fellowship, even now, that you would help us in encouraging one another, of being intentional with one another, to, to know how to bless and come alongside and grieve with those who hurt and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Lord, would your fellowship of your people be a testament to your work of grace in our lives for your glory. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen.